Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would indeed be food for famished ones and a light for us who walk in the darkness of this world. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to live as those who have tasted and seen that you are good. We pray that you would meet every need that we have in Christ Jesus by means of your word, and we ask it in his name. Amen. I want to invite you to engage in a a little thought experiment here. Uh, What if you knew a secret? And the secret entailed there being a self-replenishing limitless amount of money in the room downstairs that there's a door to and then there's a, there's a set of stairs down from that door. What if down there in that sub-basement room there was a pile of cash that just kept replenishing itself and it would, there was no limit to it? And, and now you might immediately begin to think, well, we all know that money is not really I mean, we think it would make us happy, but we know that if we had, even if we had all the money we would ever desire, we would still have unhappiness to deal with, wouldn't we? But what if this money, what if this money was enchanted so that not only was there as much as you could possibly imagine, it actually would give you joy. It actually would make you happy. Wouldn't you tell everybody? Wouldn't, wouldn't you say, hey, you should, you should come to my church. You should come to my church because there's a secret down there that I want you to be in on. There's something that you can benefit from if you'll come to our church. If you'll you'll come get access to this. We would tell people this secret, wouldn't we? We would want everybody in our lives to know about this and benefit from this. We would want everybody to get in on this deal. Well, even if we had a secret like this, you know, there's not a limitless, self-replenishing, enchanted pile of money down there. There's just not, okay? Um, just be clear about that. Um, even if we, if we knew a secret like that, though, it wouldn't be as good as the gospel. It wouldn't be as good as the gospel because even if you had an endless, self-replenishing, enchanted supply of money, even if that money could actually bring you happiness, you would still have to die. And after your death, you would face judgment. You would stand before God. And I I tell you, we, we engage in this little thought experiment because the gospel is the world's best information. The gospel not only proclaims to us what God has done for us in Christ and and. Uh, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, what God has done for us in Christ is God has sent his son who alone could deal with our sin, who alone could live a righteous life, and he lived that righteous life, and then he dealt with our sin, and then he rose from the dead. And, and that makes it so that if you trust in Christ and turn from your sin, maybe put those in the other order, you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, then you can be right with God. You can be right with God and... This information, this message, the Holy Spirit uses us actually to transform us and change us and give us genuine joy. That's what the gospel does for us. 
And when the gospel's power is at work in us by the Holy Spirit, we actually live lives that are pleasing to God. You and I, those of us who know the gospel, we know the tricky thing about this, don't we? The tricky thing about trying to share this secret with people, to get people in on this deal, uh, the tricky thing about it is that we are all, us included, we who know the gospel, we, we fall under this as well, we are proud, complacent hypocrites, and we don't think we need it. We don't think we need to be made right with God. And, and so the, the hard thing for us about trying to share the gospel with people is trying to convince people that they actually need the gospel. And that's the project that Paul is engaged in in Romans chapter one, chapters 1 through 3. So if you would open with me, we're going to look this morning at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. We've been working our way through Romans. In the first 15 verses of the first chapter, uh, Paul explains, he, he sets out the gospel, and then, he, and then he talks about how he's obligated and eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. And the reason he feels that way is because the gospel is God's power for salvation, and because the gospel reveals God's righteousness, and it reveals God's wrath. And Paul is, is going to address people uh, who don't think they're under God's wrath. And that's where we're really focused today in Romans 2, 17 through 29. Paul is going to try to convince his Jewish contemporaries, complacent, hypocritical, proud Jewish contemporaries of Paul, he's trying to convince them that they are actually under the wrath of God. This is all building toward Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And, and when Paul gets to Romans 3, 20, he wants his whole audience to be convinced that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's where Paul's trying to get people, because after that, he's going to explain to them the gospel, how by faith, uh, by faith in Christ, people can be justified in God's sight. So that's the message that Paul is building toward, and um, he's, he's been... Uh, talking about how God is an impartial judge in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and that has implications for his, his proud, complacent Jewish contemporaries. And then in la the last time we were together, in Romans 2, 12 through 16, we, we saw that Paul is talking about the law being written on the hearts of some people, and now here in this section, in 2, 17 through 29, um, he's, going to, he's going to talk about eventually how it is that the law comes to be written on someone's heart. And, and, and that's going to come when he starts talking about circumcision of the heart. But before he gets there, he's going to try to make his Jewish contemporaries feel that they need this experience. And he's going to begin in, in Romans 2, 17 and 18, talking about the privileged position of the Jews. Um, as we go through this, what I want to do... You know, because most of us, I don't think, I, I don't know if there's anyone here of Jewish heritage. Maybe there's someone here who has uh, that background. But um, I, I also don't think that there's anyone here who's a proud, complacent Jew, thinking that your, your Jewish heritage and your privileged position is actually going to justify you in God's sight. So what I want to do as we go through this is I want to talk about how, first about what Paul's words say to that person, but then I want to I wanna sort of make an analogy um, to how they might apply, apply to us today 
whether we're a believer or an unbeliever. So we'll first think about what these words say to the Jews and then what they say to us today. So 2, 17 and 18, Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, So what Paul is doing here is he's now addressing people directly who think that their privileged status, their their racial heritage, if you call yourself a Jew, the word um, Jew here comes from the word uh, Judean, and and this was a way that the Jewish people began to identify themselves. Previously, they had referred to themselves as Hebrews or uh, Israelites, and now uh, in Paul's day, they're largely referring to themselves as Jews. And, and so they're identifying as Jews, and they think that that puts them right with God. And they're relying on the law. This is God's word, God's revelation. And they're boasting in God. They're, they're saying things like, look, we didn't save ourselves from Egypt. We didn't choose ourselves. God chose us. God chose us. God saved us from Egypt. We didn't invent the covenant. God invented the covenant. They're boasting in God. They're giving God credit where credit is due. And, and then in verse 18 there, and know his will. They know what God wants for people. It's clearly stated in the Ten Commandments. They understand what God wants. And approve what is excellent. Here, I think uh, the Jewish people, they could discern between good and evil. They didn't approve of, the, of, of things that were not worthy of approval. They approved of the, the, the superior things, the things that God would be pleased by. It's like... It's like Paul is saying, you know all the right things. You think all the right things. In verse 19, uh, we move from, well, first, sorry, let me me stay here in 2, 17 and 18 today, or 17 and 18 for this moment. So for the Jew, all all that Paul has addressed there, there, and there are at least four privileges here, they rely on the law, they they boast in God, they know his will, and they approve what is excellent. All of these things would have been true about national Israel. And Paul is going to tell them, this doesn't stand you right before God. So if you're here today and you're a believer, I would, I would suggest to you that it is possible to know the gospel and to think that your theology puts you in the right with God. That's a danger for us. We can feel superior to other people because we think we have a right understanding of the truth. I'm, I'm not disparaging knowing theology. I, we, ought to, we ought to want to know the truth. We ought to want to understand the scriptures. We ought to want to boast in God. These are all good things. What I'm saying to you is it's not decisive. It's not decisive. And it could be used wrongly as it was being used wrongly by Paul's Jewish contemporaries. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, I suspect, and this is just because I, I say this because I know my own heart and because I've, a lot, I've talked to a lot of people, and this seems to be true of just about everybody. I suspect that you have some secret thoughts about yourself, that you think these are, are privileges, these are things about you that, that you look to. When, you, when somebody says something negative about you and you want to bolster your self-esteem, you think about this this reality about yourself. Or there's, there's some, some knowledge or some idea or some truth about you that when you're trying to comfort yourself, you appeal to that truth. 
and you relish this, whatever, whatever it is about you, you relish it as proof of your own superiority over other people. I suspect that if you're an unbeliever here today, there's something like that in your life. And Paul is going to say that this is, this is useless. Look at verse 19. Paul moves from the privileged position of the Jews to the role of the Jews. And, and everything he says here, you could derive from the Old Testament. Verse 19, he says to this, these uh, proud, complacent Jewish contemporaries of his, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Um, back in Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah had said of the Jewish people in verse 7 that their role was to open the eyes that are blind. And then Paul goes on, so on the basis of their privileges in verses 17 and 18, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And again, Isaiah 42, verse 6, um, the Lord says to Israel, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And then related to that, really, really what made them a Uh, A guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness was the truth of the scriptures. So verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. When Moses gave the law to Israel, he said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that when the nations saw the way that they lived in accordance with the law, they would look at them and they would say, what great nation is this? that has rules and statutes that are so good. So they're, they're an instructor to the foolish, and they're teachers of children. They were to teach their own children the law. And Paul says in verse 20 there, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. So for the Jews, this was their role. They had this privileged position, and they were to impart the knowledge of God to the nations. And Paul is going to indict them for not doing this. But again, let's think about how this might apply to a believer today. The gospel that we preach opens blind eyes, doesn't it? Paul says in Romans, I'm mean, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm just moving through Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, I want, um, that, that through the message of the gospel, God actually does open the eyes that are blind and we actually do follow the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. And yet, and yet, we need something more that Paul is going to get to here. We're working our way toward it. For an unbeliever, you know, just in the same way that we, we all, it's like, we're, it's like we're all wired, because, and I think, I mean, this is a sinful wiring, but we are all wired, wired toward thinking that we're superior to other people in the same way that we look to things about ourselves or our background or our, our experiences and we think it makes us better than other people. In the same way, we think that we're ready to teach others. We think everybody should learn from us. So if, if you're an unbeliever here today, I, I would ask you, what is it that you think you'll teach others? And what gives that teaching authority? And how do you know that it's true? Now, in verses 21 through 24, Paul is going to indict the Jews for their hypocrisy. He's talked about their privileges in verses 17 and 18, their role in verses 19 and 20, and now he goes after their hypocrisy. 
So verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And, and, and that's sort of a general statement, and he's going to get specific. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So there are three questions here. And, and, and uh, the, first, the first one is, uh, has to do with stealing. And, and the law says, the commandment says, thou shalt not steal. And I think what, what Paul is getting at here, he's not saying every Jew who has ever lived is a thief. He's not saying that. But there are, there are striking examples in Israel's history of people who have stolen things. I mean, we can think of Achan, for instance, who at, the, at, at that first battle when Israel came into the land of promise, he took forbidden things. He was a thief. That stuff was supposed to be put under the ban. And then I think, I think if, if we were to hear Paul uh, preach this, he might elaborate on this point and, and, and perhaps bring out what's at the heart of, of theft. And what's at the heart of theft is a discontentment with what we have. There's a discontentment with what we've received, and then there's a desire for, a coveting of what someone else has or of what has been forbidden to us, and then a lack of respect for the rights of the person who owns those things. And so we think, I can take that. We're not content with what we have. We covet what someone else has. We don't respect his rights to what he has, and so we seize it. And every aspect of that comes under condemnation. Every aspect of that is guilty. If we are discontent with what we have, we are guilty. If we are coveting what someone else has, we are guilty. And if we're not respecting another person's rights to what he has, we are guilty. If we think to ourselves, well, he shouldn't be paid all that money for doing that work that he does. Who made us the judge? We have no right to think this way. And, and if we do begin to think this way, our mistaken ideas about truth and justice don't give us the right to seize that person's property. So, so there, there, there's a whole range of attitudes that come under this condemnation while you preach against stealing. Do you steal? And, and whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, I think if we ask ourselves these questions, are we content with what we have? Are we content with what we have? Are we genuinely satisfied with what we possess all the time? Do we respect the right of others to have what God has given to them? These are convicting questions. And what Paul is trying to bring out is the way that anybody that upholds the standard, and the Jews, they're going to confess the commandments. They're going to uphold the standard. But we all fall short of the standard. The second question, you who stay that, say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And again, this, this, this would not condemn every Jew who had ever lived of, of committing literal physical adultery. But just as with Achan and his sin, we've got famous examples in the Old Testament, don't we, of adultery. I mean, David and Bathsheba. So any, any Jew who's trying to take 
pride and build himself up on his Jewish heritage and on his law keeping. It's like Paul is, is systematically trying to pull those props out from under him so that he collapses under the weight of his own guilt. And then just as we did with, with theft, we can do the same with, with adultery. It's just applied to the most intimate of relationships. Why do people commit adultery? They're not content with what they have. They're not content with what they have. They covet what someone else has. And they don't respect the marriage that they're violating. The marriage of the, the person with whom they're going to commit adultery. Their own marriage. Their own spouse. They're not respecting these rights. And, and even if we're not talking about physical adultery, Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so there, there is this, this damning evidence that stands against humanity in these questions. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then this third question, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, I'm not Honestly, I'm not exactly sure what all Paul is getting at. But again, there are examples of this kind of thing from Israel's history. We can think of, of uh, Jacob's daughter. Remember when Jacob was fleeing with, from Laban, his father-in-law. Uh, I'm sorry, not his daughter, his wife. Um, Rachel and Leah. And Rachel, do you remember what she had done? Rachel had stolen the household gods of her father. This is a matriarch of Israel. This is one of the women from whom the 12 tribes of Israel come, and she has stolen the household gods of her father. And then that kind of adultery is indicted, I'm, I'm sorry, spiritual adultery, idolatry. That idolatry is indicted across the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua urges his contemporaries, put away the foreign gods from among you. Amos chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, this is quoted in, in Acts 7. Amos denounces the way that across their history, Old Testament Israel, they were sacrificing to false gods. Now, why does Paul put it this way? Why does he say, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but I think this must have been convicting to Paul's contemporaries. This must have, have had some purchase in their hearts. It must have had some traction with them. So I don't know what they were doing. Maybe they were, maybe in, in one way or another, uh, they were somehow attaining a financial advantage that was not altogether above board and that revealed that they themselves were idolatrous. What, whatever it was, uh, Paul says to them, you abhor idols. Do you rob temples? And I think what he's getting at is along the same lines of, of what, we've already, what we've already considered here. Do you know God? Are you genuinely satisfied in your knowledge of God? And are you, are you having your longings and your yearnings met by pursuing deeper intimacy with the living God that you confess? Or, or are you resorting to these false gods? In, maybe, maybe not in overt ways that everyone can see, but whatever this robbing temples refers to, I think Paul is suggesting you actually are idolatrous. 
So, so we, can, we can bring all these questions to ourselves as believers, can't we? And we can ask ourselves if we're content with what we have, if we respect the rights of others, if we're, if we're satisfying our longings by pursuing the Lord. We can also pose these questions to unbelievers. And, and with unbelievers, if we think about something like theft, we might, we might say to them, to, if, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, what is it that, that makes it so that you don't want people to steal from you? What is it that makes it so that their power to take things from you is actually not justified just because they're stronger? You know, just because there's a resource and the door's not locked doesn't mean that you can take that resource. And, and maybe just because there's a resource and the door's not locked and... Maybe you're not going to take the resource, but maybe you can tell it someone else, hey, that resource is there. Door's not locked. It doesn't make it right. We all know it doesn't make it right. If you're an unbeliever, why wouldn't it be right? You know it's not right. If you're an unbeliever and you think maybe I should have the right to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, yeah, but if you're married, you probably don't want your spouse operating on that that principle, why would, why would that be? Why would there be this in you that you would want your spouse to be faithful to you? And if you're an unbeliever, you might, you might be thinking, oh, I don't worship gods. We actually do worship, all of us. You do worship something. You do look to things that give you significance. You look to things that, that tell you a story. You look to things that, that promise you deliverance. You are worshiping. The only question is, what? And, and then Paul closes the, the, this section where he's exposing the hypocrisy of his Jewish contemporaries. In verse 23, he says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And then here's his proof in verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul is trying to convince his Jewish contemporaries that they don't have the ability to keep the law, that their hearts don't please God. And it, now he's going he's to discuss in verses 25 through 29 what it is that does please God, what it is that makes it so that someone stands right before God with their good knowledge, what it is that enables someone to, to be content with what they have, to be content in the marriage that they're in and to repudiate all idolatry. And, and what that is, is circumcision of the heart. Now, Paul is going to play on the idea of physical circumcision, and he's going to start there. And the reason he starts there is because his Jewish contemporaries, the males, they would have looked to the, their physical circumcision as an indicator that they were in the covenant, that they were right with God. And, and this was on their bodies, it was part of who they were, and they took it as, as evidence that they're right with God. And Paul wants to undermine this. And so he says to them in verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If, you, if you're not able to abide by the commandments, the fact that you have a physical marking on your body does not stand you righteous before God. And then he goes on, verse 26, 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And here again, I think Paul is talking about the same group of people that we saw in in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, when he spoke of the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature in verse 14, but do what the law requires because in verse 15, the, the work of the law is written on their hearts. These Gentiles, they're not physically circumcised, but they keep the law and they are regarded as being circumcised. Not not literally. The idea is they're right with God. They're considered, they're reckoned as being right with God because, because they keep the law. So if this is the case, verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Okay, so Paul is just communicating to his Jewish contemporaries, look, if this person has a circumcised heart and they do what the law requires, their righteous deeds will show you to be in the wrong because you don't keep the law. And then he concludes in verses 28 and 29, and he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay, so it's not the marks on our bodies that make us one, one thing, make us right with God or not. And, and circumcision, the kind of circumcision that Paul is talking about, is not what happens to you physically. He says in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, the person who is circumcised of heart, his praise is not from man, but from God. And here Paul is appealing to Deuteronomy itself. Paul's appealing to Deuteronomy chapter 10, where in the midst of his laws, in the midst of giving the laws, Moses had called Israel to circumcise their own hearts. And when Moses says that to Israel, he, he calls them to do something that they cannot physically do to themselves because they cannot perform some kind of open-heart surgery upon themselves and, and then cut away flesh from their hearts in a way that will actually change their attitudes, change their dispositions, and make them want to obey the law. They can't do that to themselves. So in calling them to do that, what Moses is, is pushing them, I think, to realize is we need God to do this to us. God has commanded us to circumcise our hearts. We can't do that, so we need God to do that for us. And then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses tells Israel, the Lord himself will circumcise your hearts. So so this heart circumcision, this is what makes someone a true Jew, verse 29 there. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul doesn't want us to go around referring to ourselves as Jews. What he's saying is, this is a way of saying, if you have a circumcised heart, you are in the right before God. Now, what this means is that only by this experience, having your heart circumcised, only by this can you be enabled to believe in God in such a way that you actually keep the law, only by the heart circumcision. So this heart circumcision is kind of like this secret that I was talking about at the beginning. 
Because this heart circumcision makes us ready and able to trust God to provide for us. And when we trust God to provide for us, it actually does result in us being content with what we have and experiencing the satisfaction that he alone can bring. And as I was reflecting on this, I, I, I'm, I'm confident that, that most of us in this room, many of us in this room, have indeed experienced the circumcision of the heart. I'm also confident that, that those of us who are born again, we often sin in ways that we wish we wouldn't, in ways, in ways that we wish we, we didn't sin. And as I was thinking about these realities and, and why this is, um, I, I thought about what, what came to mind was this image of these two pools. And, and one of these pools looks like a paradise. It's been designed by a deceiver. And as I thought about this, I thought about someone like um, um, Uday, Uday, I don't know how you say his name, Hussein. This was one of the sons of Saddam Hussein. Uh, so this, this son of Saddam was over the Olympic program in Iraq before the fall of, of that regime. And um, he would entice people to come and compete on his Olympic teams. He would, he would try to woo people with the wealth, the money, the prestige, the opportunity. And this is, this is the way that Satan entices us. It's like he makes that pool look like a paradise. He he, it, it's got nice palm trees, it, 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 looks, it looks glorious, the water looks clear and pure, it, it, it's very, very attractive. And then the way of the Lord, by contrast, it looks like an above-ground swimming pool in an overgrown backyard, you know? It doesn't look attractive in, in the worldly way that, that satanic t- Satan's temptations do. Uday Hussein, when Olympic athletes who competed for him, when they didn't win... He would punish them. There, there were athletes who, who he, th- what he said was, when you don't win, you embarrass Iraq. And when you embarrass Iraq, you embarrass me. So he took this personally that these people didn't win. And, and he punished them in these horrific ways. He would, um, he would lacerate people's backs, and then he would throw them into a vat of open sewage. And, and that pool, the world's pool, the Satan temptation pool, it looks so clear and pure, but when you dive into that pool, you dive into a vat of sewage with open wounds. This other pool that looks so unattractive by worldly standards, it looks like an above-ground swimming pool in an overgrown backyard, but you dive into it, and it's the, it's the fountain of life. It, it's, it's clear and pure water in which you actually find relief and satisfaction and joy. So, so this heart circumcision that we've experienced, it enables us to discern what's really behind that very tempting look-like paradise pool. Actually, that's sewage. And yet we're still tempted by it, aren't we? We're still tempted by it. So what, what do we do? What do we do? What we do is we have to cultivate our knowledge of the truth. We have to, we ha- first, if you're not born again, you need to cry out to the Lord. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If, if, you, if you sense, I'm diving into that pool because I'm not born again, you need to cry out to the Lord for salvation. 
And, and, and the Lord doesn't turn anyone away who wants to come to him. If you're born again, you need to dive into that overgrown, that above-ground swimming pool in the overgrown backyard. I think, I think what, what happens to us is something like this. If I dive wholeheartedly into this pool, I won't have access to the pleasures of this pool. And it's like we want to hold on. And it's like we don't want to surrender all access to and all opportunity to go get in the devil's pool. And, and what we have to do is throw ourselves in wholeheartedly to this righteous, it might not look good by worldly standards, but we have to, we have to plunge in with everything that we are. And it, it's going to entail risk and it's going to entail trust, but it's going to be the right thing to do. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Those, those who, who walk in the circumcision of the heart, they actually do please God. This is better than that secret we were talking about at the beginning, because in that secret, you could have all the money you would need in your life, and you still have to face God. This secret... This secret that we know and that we have the opportunity to share results in people actually experiencing the praise of God. God is pleased with people who have circumcised hearts. His praise is not from man, but from God. God is pleased with people who have circumcised hearts. They, they have his favor. They receive his approval. And this ensures eternal life. We've got to share the secret. We've got to communicate the message of the gospel because, because it is only the gospel that results in people having these circumcised hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would take your word and seal it to our hearts. Convict us of our sin. Make us content in what you have given to us. Cause us to seek to satisfy ourselves in knowing you. And Lord, help us to spread this good news whereby people are born again, whereby people can be right with you and receive praise from you. We ask that you, do, you would do more than we can ask or think. In the name of Jesus, amen.